Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios, East and West, transmitting across the internet. This is episode 252 of Registry Matters. Good evening. How are you, you people, this evening? We are doing well. lovely. Uh, who was that other voice there? It's we, we me. Are, I'm not a oh, ghost. I'm here. All right. So <laughs> we are being joined tonight by an individual who is from Texas. Her name is Araceli. And her son was trapped into one of these crazy sting operations that we've covered a couple times on Craigslist Casual Encounters. No strings attached. In 2018, right before Craigslist shut down their personal ads. Um, so that's like the intro version of what is going down this evening. And, uh, tell me what other things that we might have going. I know I dove right in Larry. I wasn't expecting Araceli to, to jump in so quick, but, uh, tell us what we're going to be covering tonight. Well, we're going to be covering this sting, uh, in great detail with a lot of questions that have been prepared in advance that I have looked at and, we're going to be covering an old case that's been around for years and years out of Arizona that deals with a person named Stephen May and his quest for freedom and how the system of justice has failed Stephen May. We have talked to God, when would, maybe a year ago we last talked about Mr. May. I don't know. I th I know it's been a number of times and probably within the last year because this case lives on and on and on and they're trying to find everything they can to get him out of prison and I don't blame them. Yeah, of course. Because he, he didn't get five years. How many years did he get? Just 75. Oh, just man, piece of cake. No worries there. You get out before you know it at 75. And I mean, maybe if you were locked up when you were two, that seems plausible, but he's not. I mean, middle age, I don't know how old he was, but 30s or 40s or something like that. So 75 years, why didn't they just say, here's a death sentence? Seems more like if that's what they're going to do, that's what they should have done. He's well into his 40s, if not pushing the door at 50. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's a life sentence effectively. All right. Um, sh do, do you have anything at all that you want to talk about before we uh, dive into the sting stuff? No, I'm looking forward to having all these tough questions and <laughs> and uh there's going to be some commentary at the beginning and at the end and then we're going to take the questions all right and i want to remind everybody that we are not enemies we're not trying to be combative and so with all that ground rule set uh Araceli, you have like an opening remark that you would like to make i guess yes yes thank you um so I wanted to start off by saying, so it makes sense that these online child predator sting operations started when they did, because uh, back in the late 90s and the early 2000s, online chat rooms were general and they were being used by people of all ages. That means adults and minors were together in the same chat rooms. Uh, and these were chat rooms that were created for, socialize, for socializing. And so it made sense to post as a minor in those places to a attract adults who were seeking minors to exploit uh, to exploit sexually. So it makes sense for them to have been doing that in, in those places. And as the internet evolved, 
and separate adult-only sites were created for the purpose of adults meeting other adults for sexual purposes. Uh, those that were conducting these child predator sting operations, they obviously figured out that it was way easier to target men in these adult predator sting operations. Um, sorry, that in these adult places and use those men to create these cases. They were faking catching predators who were seeking kids online than it was to address the real problem of minors being targeted by adults online to exploit them and the places where children were online. Sure. Larry, please, uh, what do you have to say to that so far? Uh, so far, I, I agree with what she's saying, and I would even add additional that in my 20 years in law, I think I've seen one case of an actual minor being propositioned online. Uh, so I'm not sure that I think uh, she's being more generous than I would be about that it makes sense to have these <laughs> operations, because I don't think that, that I think it's a solution in search of a problem, but okay. All right, well, please continue then, madam. Okay, well, this is a problem because of the money that is being made from fooling people into believing that these thing operations are actually helping keep their kids safe online. Uh, what do you mean by the money being made? And I already know because I understand what happens, but just for the audience, explain what you mean. How is the money made? Well, we know that in order to receive ICAC funding, and ICAC is Internet Crimes Against Children, uh, in order to receive funding from them, from the, uh, from the federal ICAC grant program, and this is states or police task forces, they have to report their numbers of how many investigations um, they have conducted um, of online child exploitation, how many arrests were made, how many were referred for federal prosecution, how many convictions uh, for the state they had, and what types of sentences were given. So they need to they need the arrests and the convictions in order to get and to maintain and to maximize the money they get from these federal grant programs. And if these cases aren't happening on their own, um, will police have to go out and create them for the purpose of getting this money? And we also know that some uh, also receive donations from other sources like private private um, donations from organizations and vigilante groups who are not law enforcement. They also do this for money purposes. Many of them uh, solicit donations, and they are also looking to make money off of this by streaming their videos in places like YouTube. Uh, I agree with what you said there, but without being combative or confrontational, there is no state or local jurisdiction that's required to do these. Just because they're in search of a pot of gold, in particular, for because it's free federal money from the large federal government that everybody says is too big, they are actually seeking money that they don't have to apply for. And as a local resident in your city, if you live in a city that has a police department that t takes part in these, as a part of the political process, you can put pressure on them to not seek these federal funds because they're not required to do that. But I agree with you that is, in fact, there is money driving this. When there's money to be had from the big old bad federal government, everybody who claims they want a small government has their paw out to get into that trough. But yes, so so far so good. Yeah, and it makes sense because police officers, you know, don't have high salaries. So it makes sense that they would want in on this money because they get to work overtime hours and all that. And it, it, it 
also increases what goes into the retirement funds and all that. So there's a lot to that. Um, anyway, it, it takes much more effort with way too few catches if the decoys for the police officers simply post as a minor in the places online that kids hang out on and act like real kids do act online. And I'm talking about places like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, video game platforms, um, which are the places where real kids have been lured by, you know, predators online who are seeking kids to exploit. Um, I'm pretty sure this is something that was figured out even before the internet evolved into having those separate adult only websites that are used by adults for sexual purposes. Um, and by claiming by some, when someone claims that they are a minor after they have used to lure, lure men in to contact them, it's just much easier for that person to force a conversation to be about sex because they've already set it up to be about sex. And it's much easier for them to, to force it into have, being a conversation about sex with the minor and then turn around and lie to everybody about it, claiming that they caught an online child predator and they stop them from raping a child. They were never looking for a kid to begin with. So that's why I say they're lying about it. What do you say about that, Larry? Uh, so far, I agree with what she's saying. That is precisely what happens when they are in these chat rooms posing as adults to begin with. Then they morph into minors and it confuses the adult because the adult thinks that some sort of role playing is one option. They think it's a fantasy play. They don't know what to think and they use all sorts of guilt uh, mechanisms to try to keep the engagement going. They, you know, they said, well, you're just like the rest of the adults. Uh, you don't care about me. You know, I, I mean, they, the adults, the, the detectives, they've had immense amount of training. They are at a great advantage over the unsuspecting individual. So everything she's saying is so, is so true. And then they go out and say that they kept all this, these people from taking advantage of a child. These people were never seeking to take advantage of a child. So, so far, so good. Yeah, yeah, it's completely uh, created to to confuse the men, and and of course, most of them are curious, and some of them are even concerned. So, yeah, that's a big problem. So, I want to move into there's a federal law. It's U.S. Code three seven three. I'm not a lawyer, but I've been I do a lot of research and and look into the different laws and all that because I've been trying to figure this out. Like, why is this happening, and how can it be that they keep getting away with doing this? Uh, this law specifies that it is illegal for anybody to solicit another person to commit a federal crime. It does specify that it has to be a, a crime of violence. Um, and then we know that law enforcement, their goal is to, to create federal cases because, of course, that helps them with their funding. So their goal is to refer these to, to, federal, uh, to the federal government for prosecution and we know that U.S. Code 2422 is a federal law that specifies that it is illegal to use the inter Internet to solicit someone for sex who is under the age of 18. Okay, uh, well, we, okay, we got two things to break down here. Are you, are you finished with the question? Because I'll try to break down both of those two statutes. Yes, yes, go ahead. Okay, so with uh, when you the first one, the 18 U.S.C. 373, confuses people all the time, even legal professionals. I've had this, this discussion with attorneys and it takes them some time to get it. 
when you solicit a person to commit a crime, it has to be a crime if that person commits it. Uh, and you're thinking, well, that sounds nutty. If I solicit a minor to engage in sex with me, for example, in my state, it's legal to have sex with a minor as long as they're above the age of consent, which is 16. So I can solicit minors all day long to have sex as long as they're above the age of 16. So there would be no prosecution available against a minor. It has to be a crime that the person who's being solicited would be, it would be criminal for them. It's not a crime for a minor to have sex. They can never be subject to prosecution. They would be at most a victim in this. Now, what's going through your mind right now is, well, there is no minor. And that is absolutely true. There, there absolutely is not a minor. There's a whole uh, group of detectives working in that chat sting operation. But the, the statutory interpretation treats them as if they are minors because they're posing and the statutes have, have allowed them to pose as minors. So equivalent under the legal interpretation, they are in fact minors, even though they're adults. So therefore, the minor can't be prosecuted because the minor is the victim of that crime. So on, on answer number one, you can't prosecute a victim. Now, on answer number two on the, this on this section, U.S. Code uh, uh, section twenty four twenty two, that is, is it, it's in fact illegal to solicit someone for sex who's under the age of eighteen, federally, not necessarily state, but federally. So, if you go online and do that federally, it's against the law. Even though it wouldn't be against the law if you did it in the state of New Mexico, it would be against the law federally. But when when you're making that solicitation. The, the law enforcement is saying, we didn't solicit anybody. They solicited us. We just presented the opportunity. So it'd be equivalent. Their argument would be, if you go into a local library and you go in the library, you, you would make the argument, well, I didn't go to the library for sex. But if you go into a, a library and you have sex and you solicit sex, <laughs> it's no longer the library. <laughs> it's, it's sexual activity. And sting operations are completely legal as long as the law enforcement doesn't make the overture and begin the discussion about criminality. If I go to a local strip where, where pe people hang out to hustle, and there may be five legitimate hustlers there, and there may be one sting operation nearby, and, and I'm looking to pick up on an adult, and one of those adults happens to be a police officer, they have not entrapped me because I'm out cruising trying to pick up. And when I pull up to the detective and say, yeah, what are you doing this evening? I'd like to hook up. And they say, yeah, but I do this for a living. Are you willing to pay? You know, this is how I'll make my living. You're getting into a gray area. They generally let the person offer to pay first. But when these men show up for meetings, they win the case because they have morphed even though they've morphed into minors, the person has shown that they are willing and predisposed to have a sexual encounter with a minor. That's how they win. Ah, but did they really show or did the police officers just make it look that way? Because was it the intention? So we know that it was not law enforcement's intention to have them have sex with the minor, right? But was it the intention of law enforcement to target men on adult sites or apps that adults use for sexual purposes to get those men to have sexual conversations with someone online 
who claimed to be a minor. Oh, it's absolutely well, exactly what you said. They go into these sting operations knowing that they're going to find vulnerable, lonely, hormonal enraged men, all of the above. They're going to find these people and they're going to be able to succeed in their agenda. You're absolutely right. I wish it didn't happen, but it's a form of grooming by law enforcement. But I would have to see the chat logs. I don't do a lot of federal defense. I've been a consultant on a handful of cases, so I haven't seen many of these chat logs. But the chat logs I've seen have been very compelling and damning against the accused. It has not been obvious to me. And in fact, I sat on a grand jury for three months last year, January, February, March, and we indicted a number of these cases as well. And I did have some trepidation on a couple of them. But on most of the cases, it was clear that in my mind that the probable cause existed because the the accused had taken the bait they had decided that they were all of a sudden willing to have these romantic encounters even though they didn't start out that way so that's like saying if you go to a place not intended to do something you can form the requisite intent in fact the the grand jury judge instructed us that way the intent formulation of intent can occur relatively quickly so even though they didn't Enter the chat room the intention of soliciting a minor, they were able to form form the requisite intent in very short order, and that's how they win. Okay, so I get the part, you know, that they they showed intention or made it look like there was intention. Uh, I think we agree that it was the intention of law enforcement to make the men provide sexual conversation to someone claiming. To to be a minor online, someone they met online who then claimed to be a minor. And, and it was their intention to get the men to show up to meet this person. We agree on that, right? Yes. That it was law enforcement's intention to do that. Okay. Is it illegal to provide a sexual conversation to someone online who has claimed to be a minor and then show up to meet that person? I'm not sure I completely follow the question. Is it illegal to provide a sexual conversation with someone online who is claimed to be a minor and then show up to meet that person? If you only show up to meet the person and you absolutely disavow any desire to have sex, if you simply, if all the chat logs were to reveal, I'm coming to meet you to try to protect you. You shouldn't be here. Somebody's going to hurt you, and I'm worried about you, and I absolutely will not have sex with you, but I am going to try to save you from vultures and predators that may be on this platform. I don't believe that that person would be convicted. Actually, they have been. I've seen well, it. I, like, like I said, I haven't, been I, haven't seen, I, I haven't seen that. I don't have enough experience in, in the federal system, but I saw one on To Catch a Predator who said that he tried to lay that foundation by saying that I'm really not interested in having sex. I'm worried about you. But then he showed up with the condoms and all the other stuff and booze and everything that the, that the minor told him to show up with. So he ended up, he ended up, if I think I recall that he took a plea. But yes, it, it's, this is a disaster. One important thing that I hadn't thought about before that I need to bring up is the fact that we know now, too, that law enforcement and these vigilante groups can and have actually altered these chats. They can, they can delete parts of it. And, and that's something that the courts have not considered. Like there, most of these cases have not gotten experts is that, is that a question? to look at that, to authenticate that is, the chat. Cause I can answer is, that. The, 
the way it's presented because it can be tampered with. And we know it, some of them have been most, most, most often they will omit parts. You know what I'm, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, when you say alter, there's two, there's two ways to alter. There would be omission or there would be actual deletion and, and deliberate, deliberate manipulation of the chat uh, history. I have heard of that. I've not been on a case where I've actually seen it, but I've, I've heard that alleged. And that is a legitimate defense. If they're hiding the ball from you. But a lot, you, a you lot can, of them don't. I'm sorry. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> if they're hiding the ball in the in the process that's one of the motions that you would make in pretrial that that the you have not been provided complete discovery and there's relevant and missing discovery that's pertinent that would tend to cast doubt on the on the uh, on on the defendants on the accused uh, mental culpability and what was happening those are serious accusations if someone does that yeah and i mean and, and we have seen the proof of that and it's too bad that we didn't find out about this until because of the group, our cage group that I belong to. And, uh, you know, talking to other people about this, we figured this out and we figured out it, it it's a common thing that happens. Um, we've seen it several times, but most guys, I think they're just so embarrassed when they get caught. They're not paying attention to those details. They're just embarrassed. They just want this. They've been humiliated. They're not looking at that. They don't catch that. So who knows how many times that has happened and those men were convicted when they shouldn't have been. And that's that's very infuriating to see that that has happened and they've gotten away with it. But anyway, I got off a little, I got uh, off topic a little there. I want to go back to uh, U.S. Code 2422. So my understanding of this is that it is illegal for someone to use the Internet to solicit someone for sex with a minor. Solicit a minor for sex uh, that you met online. Um, based on US Code 373, all that needs to be proven is that someone encouraged them to commit the crime. Now, I am not focused on the crime of statutory rape. I am focused on the crime of soliciting a minor because isn't it true that soliciting a minor online itself is a crime? And that law enforcement did solicit the men to commit that crime by inducing the conversation to be about sex with the minor? It's a relatively novel argument that you're trying to make. I doubt you've gotten a lot of interest from attorneys when you've made this uh, suggestion to them because the law enforcement, they continue to maintain that the men opened the door that the men went down the path, that they just simply were there and the men did this. But law enforcement clearly used their vastly superior intellectual skills to manipulate the situation and play on the raging hormones of the adult. And they used their training to make the adult feel okay with what was happening. You get no dispute from me about that. Law enforcement is looking for a problem that actually doesn't exist very much in my opinion. There are not many minors out there looking for sex with adults. They may be looking for drugs and booze and money, but money. Uh, the average, the average, the average minor, the average teenager does not find people who are 40, 50, 60 years old to be very sexually appealing. They're not trying to, and because there's so much knowledge out there about the penalties with a soliciting minor, there are very few adults 
actually soliciting minors for sex. I just don't see the evidence that it's happening. So you are saying that it's not that they that, that law enforcement is not soliciting someone to commit the federal offense of soliciting a minor online. U.S. Code twenty four twenty two. I'm saying that I have not seen compelling evidence that they were actually soliciting. Hey, you know, I got this minor. I, I think I can hook you up with them. That would be unlawful. But if you're in a chat room posing as a minor and you morph from an adult to a minor and somehow there is an invitation for sex from the person itself. Now, if the, if the minor says, if the proposing minor says, I want to have sex with you, that is a solicitation. But the minor is still the victim. The minor can make the solicitation. The minor can solicit an adult to have sex. The minor can't be prosecuted because okay. the, minor would still be the minor would still be the victim. Yes, so t the way I'm looking at this is the law is very clear on if you encouraged a crime, then you solicited them for that. It makes sense to me that the minor would not be held accountable for demanding sex from a, an adult online because they are a minor. However, in these cases, it's not a real minor. It's really an adult who is pretending to be a minor who is demanding sex from a random adult stranger online that they met on an adult sex website. I guess I'm trying to figure out how, why or how does this not apply to them because the crime itself was committed. Not only did they encourage the man to commit the crime, they pushed for him to commit the crime. And, and in many cases, they forced the crime to be committed. And the crime is not the rape of a minor. It's the soliciting a minor by forcing the conversation to be about sex with the minor and forcing the meeting to be about sex with the minor, they force for that crime to be committed. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Oh, I do indeed. I do indeed. I actually follow your logic and it's not totally without a rational basis. It's just that the statutory scheme doesn't support you on that. That's why I said I don't think you've gotten a lot of attorneys interested in your defense strategy because they would they would have looked at you with the most bizarre expressions saying this is not going to work. Now, I love going to trial, although I haven't been a part of a trial team in, in at least two, maybe three years, but I love going to trial. And if you can find someone, if, if your cage organization has someone who's willing to roll the dice and put forward this defense that you've that you've uh, not created, but that you've designed in your head, I would be supportive of doing it, but just make sure the person knows that if you get convicted, the defense doesn't work. You're looking at an even longer period of incarceration, but I'm all in favor of doing it. I just yeah, don't have a great amount of optimism. Yeah, and that's the thing. We haven't tried it yet. Like, I just, I just, you know, came up with this or, or, or had that aha moment about it just a week or two ago. That's why I'm doing this now. So we, it's not something that has been tried before, presented, you know, in a court, uh, not even really to a lawyer. I asked one lawyer about it who usually answers my questions and he hasn't responded, which is interesting. So I don't know if he's really thinking about it or looking into it or what, or maybe he thinks I'm crazy. I don't know, but he hasn't responded. And usually he responds and he'll tell me like, no, this does not apply or this doesn't work because of this or that. He hasn't responded at all. And I emailed him like two times, two, maybe three, 
Um, so I'm waiting to see. It'll be interesting. Um, let's see. So another the, the, entrap the entrapment defense is where you are now. Okay. Uh, well, can I can I get in right quick though? What I want the issue of um, you know the why somebody should have just stopped the conversation. I think that's part of my entrapment defense, isn't it? Oh, oh, I wanted to point out first is, I mean, I know most people would say, and, and realistically, soliciting a minor online, in reality, is it a crime of violence or not? Well, was there a real act of violence committed? Well, no, not really, but it was more like that the, it, there was intention, supposedly, to commit an act of violence. But our, our um, system does treat it as a crime of violence, and because the federal government has a minimum mandatory sentence of 10 years in prison and even up to life. And then there's, you know, the registry and all types of strict restrictions. So it is treated as a crime of violence or equivalent or sometimes even worse, because sometimes the sentences for these uh, for soliciting a minor online is worse than it is for someone who actually raped a minor or, you know, even had consensual sex with a minor. Uh, so I don't understand why it would not be considered to be a crime of violence. And if it is, then it should fall under, you know, U.S. Code 373. Somebody solicited, solicited someone to commit a crime of violence. And again, you said you don't disagree with that, but I guess it's something we're going to have to try in court, right? Or if we can so, find a lawyer who's willing to take it. Well, most prosecutions for the actual sexual activity would not be under federal law because the feds would not have the jurisdiction to do that. They can get you for the travel. They can get you for the solicitation. But most of the time, the actual sex, of course, and these, there's not going to be any actual sex because there's no actual minor. But traveling with the intent of engaging in sex is a federal law, but it's not a term, it's not a crime of violence in, in the true sense of how the federal uh, statutory scheme defines uh, under 18 U.S. Code uh, subsection 16, the term crime of violence means an offense that has an element, has as an element the use, the attempted use or threatened use of physical force against a person or property of another. A consensual sexual encounter would not fit under under definition A. And then under B, any other offense that is a felony and by its nature involves a substantial risk that the physical force against the person or property of another may be used in the course of committing the offense. Again, consensual sex. This would not qualify as a crime of violence. But you are correct. We treat the solicitation, people who engage in internet offenses, it tickles me, and that's Southern uh, uh, colloquial term, tickles, is, it humors me that people think that if we just had sex offender registries that treated the non-contact offenders as lightly as they deserve to be treated, they're just wrong about that. Oftentimes, the non-contact offenders are treated more harshly, they're evaluated mm -hmm. as more dangerous, and they're sentenced more harshly, and they will find themselves without being able to get off the registry because when they file their petitions for that's allowed, the, the state comes in and argues that all these imaginary things that they might have done. But in the sense of the U.S. Code, this is actually not a crime of violence. I've actually heard uh, people that work in the government say that these guys are actually more dangerous than someone who did commit the actual act of having sex with a minor. So that's, that is, yeah, that's it, correct. It's, yep. it's treated as that or worse. Um, 
You want okay. to move on down to the so, entrapment defense part? Yes. Okay. So on the entrapment defense, I'm trying to understand because uh, for the most part, these cases are not allowed the entrapment defense. And to us, it's crystal clear that this is entrapment. We still don't get why they keep saying it's not entrapment. Well, I think if I'm understanding correctly, I think it's because they're putting the focus on just the rape of a minor. Were the men solicited to rape a minor? Well, they can say no because it was not their intention to truly have the men rape a minor. Uh, however, the men were not just solicited to rape a minor. They were solicited to commit at least two crimes. They're, first of all, they were solicited to commit the crime of soliciting a minor online. Were the men induced to um, provide sexual conversation and to, yeah, before they, they were able to meet and the answer to me is clearly, yes, they were induced. And for entrapment, all you have to do is show that they were enticed, induced, or, or coerced, not even all three. And then it's entrapment. It's clear that they were induced to provide conversation about sex with the minor when they were not there to do that to begin with. So what do you have to say to that, Larry? Well, I've covered the entrapment defense a little bit already. There's only a minimal showing that needs to be made that by the law enforcement that the person had inclinations to commit criminality. The fact that they just happened to be there and happened to be the police, that's not what she's saying. I totally get that. She's saying that the police were there and in the chat room and that they moved the men in the direction that they would not have gone by inducements and by what she terms as a solicitation. If you really believe that, then you have to put that forward as a defense. Rather than pleading out, you have to notify the prosecution that you have an intent to insert an entrapment defense. You're taking it to trial, and you have to ask the court to instruct the jury accordingly. And they will read the statutory definition in Texas, in, case, in her case, in her son's case. They would read the, that to the jury at the time before they retire for deliberations. And they would tell them, if you find these elements of entrapment, if you find these elements of entrapment, then you shall return a verdict of not guilty. If you don't, then most people never get that far because when they see, I can tell you from the three months I was on the grand jury, and I remember folks, a grand jury, we don't find guilt or innocence. I didn't have anything to do with that. I had only establishment of probable cause, which is a much lower threshold, and it only took eight of the 12 of us to find probable cause. But I, I heard in three months, and we must have heard hundreds of cases, I heard no sympathy from liberal Bernalillo County, Albuquerque, from a single juror about these type of things. They were not interested in hearing entrapment. They were not interested in considering what is being put forth here. They were ready to lock these men up and indict them. I mean, some of the some of the indictments came down within minutes, you know, after after the law enforcement stopped the their presentation and we retired for deliberation. The the uh, it took one to two minutes to return an indictment. These things just don't work. So if you get the jury, to, the judge to grant an entrapment instruction, if you have the requisite elements to show that there is a credible uh, argument for entrapment, the juries just don't buy it. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, Hit the subscribe button and you're off to the races. 
You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. So, so let me, I just want to ask real quick. You don't just go into the courtroom and then go, oh, by the way, we're doing this. You have to get, quote, I, I mean, pre-approval to assert this kind of defense? Can't speak for Texas, but I'm assuming it's very similar. You notify the, we don't do ambush litigation in the United States, so the duty is to continuously disclose. So you disclose witnesses and like an insanity defense, cert- certain defenses have to be notified. You have to place the state on notice, the prosecution on notice that you're going to raise these as defenses because they need an opportunity to prepare to, to have rebuttal witnesses or whatnot. They might not have, would have called two of the witnesses to testify if they didn't know that you were going to put forth an entrapment defense. So therefore, they need to know that so that they can be prepared to rebut you on why it was an entrapment. So yes, you don't just come in one day and go to trial and do it all, do it all by ambush. This, these things happen in advance. So we were straight out told that the entrapment defense was not allowed for these cases. And of course, I know people in different states that have had that have faced these cases as well. And they were told the same thing. And it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it, it has to be, I guess, very specific. You know, you need to show why it was entrapment. But I think the problem has been that it's because they are putting all the focus on, no, they were not entrapped to rape a minor. I get that. They can say that under the law, even though technically there would have never been an attempt rape of a minor had they not created it themselves. Um, the prob- uh, I think the focus needs to be on that they induce the conversation to be sex about sex with the minor. And that's um, that's what has not been happening. I think it would make a difference if the defense lawyers start putting the, the focus on that. Because if the men are give, for example, in my son's case, uh, he was not, when once they brought up that they were 13 or 14, the first thing he said, well, you shouldn't be looking for your dates on here. Um, and then he, he was just making conversation. He was not talking about sex. They kept putting those clues out there. He was talking about going to the mall. He was, yeah, maybe that's not smart either. He was a 22 naive guy, you know, he's socially challenged. Um, but, um, that's not illegal. Had they allowed him to do that and just say, okay, yeah, let's just meet at the mall or whatever. There was nothing illegal about that. The problem is they don't allow them to do that. Or they could have stopped the conversation and said, okay, he's not one of these guys. The problem is that they forced the conversation to be about sex. They kept giving clues and supposedly they're not supposed to bring up sex first. Well, first of all, they brought up sex to begin with by posting an ad on an adult sex website as a woman who was looking for men for sexual purposes, casual encounters, no strings attached. That means casual sex. Um, but he wasn't making the conversation about sex. They did. And then they, they would not agree to meet. They kept rewarding him. They were guiding the conversation to sex. And he'd give them a little bit. And they would reward him for that. 
And then he'd give them a little bit more. And it was like, yes, okay, we can meet now. By doing that, they forced the conversation to be about sex with the minor and they forced the meeting to be about sex with the minor. They forced the crime of solicitation of a minor to be committed. And that's the problem I have with this. And I don't understand why that's not entrapment or how that's not entrapment. To, I, to me, I, it's clear that's entrapment. I guess it's because they're not looking at it that way. Is that what the problem is? Again, I don't know the specifics about entrapment defense in Texas. I, I would imagine it would have been something that could have been assertive, asserted. The lawyer probably, in professional opinion, said it's not going to work in this, and we're going to end up not even having probation as an offer. If, we, if you force a full trial rather than pleading out and taking responsibility, you're not going to get a probated outcome. And with a first-time offender, what we're trying to do is figure out a way to resolve the case so that they go home and they don't go to prison. That's what we're looking to do. So, Larry, would this be different um, for vigilante groups than it is to police? Because I know police have certain protections and stuff. But what about vigilante groups? Could they be prosecuted for soliciting someone to commit a crime? I believe that it would be potentially, depending on what is said and how far they go, that they could be prosecuted for any number of things. But again, prosecutors are elected. And can you imagine, let, you said you're from West Texas, can you imagine a district attorney saying, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm getting sick and tired of these people who are trying to clean up and keep the uh, keep our kids safe that are doing this volunteer work. And if they step one foot over the line, they're going to find themselves in front of a judge facing prison time here. Do, do you think that they would likely be reelected to be the district attorney or the prosecuting attorney for that jurisdiction if they took that posture? Yeah, it's a hard hill to climb, like it's tough, but because they make it about, yeah, just the fact that they made it about you know, sex and children to begin with. But I, what I'm trying to get, I'm trying to reverse that and show that they are the ones who sexualized kids to begin with and went around forcing that on others. And that's not acceptable. Like I, I find that to be disturbing behavior, but people don't see that because they put out the narrative about this first, right? Like when they got out in the media and said, these men were targeting kids online, they straight out lie about it. And of course, that's what's in people's heads. And they think, oh, I don't want them, you know, coming after my babies online. Well, if your baby's not on Craigslist casual encounters, you know, seeking men for sex and demanding sex from these strangers, this, that would never be a problem. You know, what you need to worry about is those that are targeting your children on Facebook and so forth. Um, so I what. So the point I want to make is that they did not prove, I think our legal system has gotten it wrong uh, by saying that they proved that the men had intentions to rape a minor or have sex with a minor. What they proved was that police can talk men on adult hookup sites or uh, sex forums, forums sorry, into saying that they agree to sex with the minor. They did prove that, and they can do that by, by you know, molding the conversation into what they need it to be and even forcing them to say they agree, because the men's goal is, is just to meet this person. Like, they've been on there talking to different people. There's a lot of bots on there. A lot of them are fake, and they're just trying to get your credit card number, and I don't know what. Finally, they get a real person that they're 
chatting with. They want to know more about this. And it's like, this is a weird, unusual situation. I've never seen this before because I've talked to men that said they use Craigslist for years. One of them said he had been using it for 10 years and had never, ever seen a minor on there or even heard about minors using, you know, this website to meet men. Uh, and if there were minors on there, nobody knew it because they weren't telling people on there that they were minors. And that that would be more normal, you know, if a minor was really on there. So, no, law enforcement did not prove that the men were predisposed or had intentions to really have sex with the minor. All they proved was that they could make the men say that they agreed to it. And then they rewarded them with, okay, we get to meet now. But it doesn't show whether the men were, really would have done it or not. Um, so they, they have that part wrong. And, and well, we know that it can be done because of false confessions. We know that police can make people say things that police want them to say, whether it's real or not. And I think that's what's happening here. Police are making them say things because then they're rewarding them with, with something. They get rewarded with the meeting to find out more about this extremely unusual situation that nobody had ever seen before. So we're going to need to kind of compress some of this over the remainder so that we can get, get to the other segment. But you're correct okay. on all those things, but the uh, they don't need to prove it when the person agrees to a plea because they are con they're consenting to the elements of the crime by virtue of their guilty or their no contest plea that they that the requisite elements were there. The person who goes to trial has a whole lot more rights because they can force the police to show that there was a solicitation and generally an attempt to engage in sex. And with a plea, that's not necessary because you're stipulating to those elements when you enter your guilty plea. So is this violating constitutional rights? How so? When, when you choose to plead guilty, what, what right are, I mean, you've been apprised of what the elements are by your attorney. You've been provided a charging indictment or an information, as it's called, with the with owner about this date, you did this, and you've had a legal professional tell you what the elements are of, that would need to be proven if you choose to go to trial. They admonish you at the police setting about all the rights that you're relinquishing. They go through a list of all this stuff, saying, do you realize you're you're forfeiting this right to cross-examine? You're, you're giving up this right and this right and this right. Do you remember that? Do you remember all those things they did? And uh, they hold up the plea agreement generally and say, this, is this your signature? Did you sign this? Did you do this under any threat or co coercion? Do you remember that process that took place? That is when the person pleads guilty, they're, they're consenting that the elements could have been met had there been a trial. So personally, I think knowing, since we know that police can make people say things that police want them to know that are not real or not, if there's no other evidence, I don't think we could trust the evidence that simply police created, right? Whether it's a confession or in this case, they created the conversation. If there's no other evidence that, you know, they would have been looking for minors online or anywhere else, I, I just, it's, I think it's just not valid. It's not credible. I mean, there's just too many wrongful convictions based on police forcing people to say things that aren't real. That's a whole other, you know, side of this. But on the constitutional rights, so this is not illegal search and seizure because they had no, um, 
they had no uh, reason, no probable cause to begin with. They created it. I, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. agree with you on that uh, because when the when the chat was unfolding with the pretend to be minor, that that created the probable cause depending on what was said. Remember, I haven't seen the chat logs, but when these things happen, it is more than adequate probable cause as far as the courts are concerned to go search the person's computer, seize their computer, and search their dwelling and look for evidence of criminality. So there would have been more than adequate probable cause. But again, if you don't think there's probable cause, you file, you have your attorney go full bore against the state. You say, we're going to file a motion to suppress. You can file motions to suppress statements that were made. You can file motions to suppress the warrant saying it was invalid. All those tools are available to you. But when you use those tools, you're not going to get a plea offer because when you force the state to do a whole bunch of work, they're not going to make you a good deal. That's just the way our system works in this country. It's set up. It's a system of pleas. And this is the way your case, your son's case unfolded, I think, by a plea agreement. And he got ended up getting a probated sentence, correct? He didn't go to trial, right? He did go to trial. He forced them to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he, that he, that he committed this crime. They called witnesses against him, and, and, and he forced the state to put on their case in chief against him. Is that correct? Yes, but it was not an honest trial. Yes, because okay. the, the way this works is they hide a lot of the important facts and evidence. Like, it was not made clear. It's like, oh, this was an, this was a, a site where you had to be 18 plus. It was not specified. This is an adult sex website that people use for, for that. Uh, it's not expected to find minors on here. They posted an ad. They didn't even specify that they posed, that they first posed as a, as a woman. They post, they said W4M, women looking for men. That part was not covered. So little things like that makes a difference to juries. And and that's how they've been getting away with this because they made it seem like this was the same thing as just coming across someone on Facebook or Instagram. It's not the same thing. There's a huge difference. And I think that's what the problem's been. We're just now getting to the part where people are finally understanding these are adult hookup sites that are used for sexual purposes it's not the same thing as your kids being, you know, on a video game platform and so forth. Um, uh, do you want to uh, have a part two segment that we could do at either to to play at a later time? Because I really want to get to the Stephen May case and we're long in the on the time zone. Yeah, and, yeah. I was going to wrap it up. I just I'm going to skip over the rest. And I just want to. Can I say my last piece that I want to say? Absolutely. Please do. <laughs> OK, so. Um, so lastly, as a woman, I just want to say, I find it to be incredibly disturbing that a grown man, like the police officer who conducted my, the son, the sting operation that my son was trapped in, he's supposed to be a protector. I find it to be incredibly disturbing that he came up with the idea of pretending to be a 13 year old virgin girl who wanted to use an adult sex website to find random adult male strangers to demand sex from those random strangers because that is what he did simply because this 13 year old girl was just bored and curious about sex it's it's and it's not even that he thought of it it's his actions it's that he went around forcing this on other men on my 22 year old son um 
And then he pretended like it was those other men having these kinds of thoughts about 13-year-old virgin girls, not him, even though it's clear and obvious these were his own thoughts. He just, he was projecting that onto others. I just find it to be incredibly disturbing uh, for somebody to be doing that. And I find it to be disturbing for people to support and even defend this very sick, twisted behavior from him and others who are doing this. They're sexualizing kids for self-serving purposes. And then they go around and force that on others for more self-serving purposes. And there's just nothing heroic about that. It's just sick, it's twisted, and it's disgusting. I don't get that. And I don't understand how prosecutors can stand by that and do that. They're defending that and they're enabling that. And that's just wrong. That's my piece on that. I agree with practically everything you said there in that closing statement. It's a tragedy that these things were happening. They were spending so much money on these things. Again, you've not heard the podcast, but I have harped about this for a long time. As long as there's funding for these things, they will happen. We have to reduce the funding. And that has been difficult to do because the hype about the crime, particularly this type of crime, how dangerous it is. But if we want to curtail the reach of law enforcement, we have to curtail the very lifeblood, which is their funding. Defund ICAC. I'm all for that. Very so. good. Uh, Araceli, thank you very much for joining us and putting all of that together. There was two or three times that, that we don't really have time to get into because we have the other stuff that we need to cover tonight too. So thank you very much for all that you put into this and thank you for coming on and being wonderful and flexible and all that. Thank you so we, much. We could do yeah, a part. Andy. We could do a uh-huh. part too with the part we didn't cover. We could bring that back as another segment at another time. So I'm not I'm sure. not saying it's not worthy, but yeah, we could do a part two. But I wanted I to get to the to. Steve, Stephen May case. All right, well, then let's pick up where we left sure. off and do another Thank and do you another so much, Larry. So, thanks. Mm-hmm. Have a great night, Araceli. Good night. Thank you, you too. All right, man. Um, so, do you need to take a breather, potty break, anything like that? No, let's do uh, this case and let's see how fast you can talk. Oh, I can talk fast. Uh, you people want to discuss the case Stephen Bay versus David Shin. And Larry, I checked FYP's archives. I checked Registry Matters. And boy, oh boy, like it's, I need toes to count how many times we have covered this. Is this another one that you can't let go of? Correct. I cannot let this case go because it's a travesty of justice. What is the question presented for the Supreme Court to decide here? If they were to grant the petition for cert, the question is whether a judgment rendered after a habeas petitioner has been unconditionally released with no collateral consequences and where the state does not dispute that the petitioner was no longer, quote, in custody pursuant to United States Code, 28 United States Code, subsection 2254, is void for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. In other words, did the court lose jurisdiction by granting habeas relief and ordering Stephen May's immediate release? That's the argument being made to the Supreme Court. And what do you people think about this argument? It's a novel argument for sure, but I'm not convinced that, that it's a compelling argument. If, if you dissect the argument, May is asserting that since the habeas court granted his immediate release, that the state of Arizona lost its ability to appeal because 
the discharge from custody extinguished the quote in custody requirement of federal habeas. His argument is that because he was released, the state sh should have no opportunity to appeal Judge Wake to the Ninth Circuit, and Judge Wake's decision is final. That's that's what he's cobbled together. So if you will grant me this, I'll set this up. The United States District Judge Neil Wake granted habeas relief based on the burden shifting of the Arizona Child CM statute, the, the Child <clears throat> CM statute. Judge Wake found that Arizona's law violated May's due process rights. And Judge Wake also found May's trial counsel was ineffective, thus that ineffectiveness provided cause and prejudice to overcome the procedural uh, default of failing to object to that issue at trial. Judge Wake found counsel's performance was deficient where it should have been obvious that the burden shifting scheme presented a serious constitutional question that uh, could have been dispositive for Petitioner May. He also found that there were no reasons, tactical or other, for failing to preserve the federal constitutional claim. That was powerful to me. And I think I've got this straight. So the lifetime federal judge declared Arizona CM statute unconstitutional and ordered Stevens immediate release. You're correct. So why do you even bother having me? Uh, well, you know, uh, so then what happened after that? Well, Arizona appealed, of course. It is noted in a cert petition that the state did not avail itself of the automatic stay to seek of the automatic stay or seek a further stay of May's release. Instead, the Attorney General's Office directed the Arizona Department of Corrections to release May from custody the following day after Judge Wake's decision. Um, so did the appeal process proceed to conclusion? It did. The Ninth Circuit originally affirmed Judge Wake. Then, on reconsideration, they chose to reverse Judge Wake. Now, after completion of the appellate process, May is arguing that the process was null and void because he was no longer in custody. Explain the custody requirement of federal habeas law, please. Sure. In order to use federal habeas as a vehicle to, to seek release or modification of a sentence, one has to be in some form of custody, and that's the requirement of the habeas statute. But the definition of in custody is broad enough to include supervision and, in some instances, unsupervised probation. But the person must be in some form, under some form of restraint or control. May now asserts that the court's jurisdiction terminated because he was released basically unconditional by Judge Wake's order finding the Arizona statute unconstitutional and that the state did not seek a stay. So he's saying that that his he's not he was not in custody. So all this. Uh, uh, litigation that happened subsequent to his release is null and void. So if I'm following this right, I see that on page 17, the it says petitioner walked out of prison a free man. He was not subject to any supervision from ADC, which is the Arizona Department of Corrections, or the state of Arizona. He was not subject to the order of a state court or supervision by the district court. And then after serving 10 years in custody, petitioner was unconditionally released. You said that the Ninth Circuit originally affirmed Judge Wake. What happened and how did they reverse that course? Well, good question. The state moved uh, for panel rehearing, meaning they asked the three-judge panel to reconsider. And a full year later, uh, in March of 2020, a divided panel, meaning two to one, reversed itself without explaining what facts or law it had overlooked or misconstrued. According to May's petition on page 19, Rather than, rather than seriously consider trials counsel 
trial counsel's actual thought process and the matters counsel did not consider, which were developed in the record, the majority hypothesized a series of reasons why a lawyer could have thought that sticking with the current trial record and jury would better serve May's interest rather than a new trial. And what had happened was that the jury had deadlocked and the judge had released the jury and then the jury asked, well, maybe on second thought, maybe we'd like to keep deliberating. And the judge quickly asked counsel, do you mind if the, ju- if the jury reconvenes and trial counsel said, no, I don't mind. They whispered in, in Stephen's ear and said, no, we don't mind. And then they ultimately, upon reconvening, they convicted him. And I'm at a loss to explain why that happened. <laughs> okay. And the dissent stated the panel's original decision affirming habeas relief was correct then and then also correct now, of course. So do you agree with that? I do indeed agree this, uh, with the dissenting judge on the panel. It was correct then. It's correct now. Uh, you stated earlier that this latest petition for search sorority, I, I only know how to say it as cert. Can you say the full word, please? No, I, I forgot how to pronounce it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Grant for cert is novel and creative. I thought Stephen, uh, he had a dream team all, all along, a dream team of lawyers. How do they overlook this novel argument for so long? It would seem that they should have contested all litigation after Judge Wake ordered his release. Uh, I agree. The petition states that on February 9th, 2022, less than one year after the mandate issued, meaning the, the, this order coming down from Ninth Circuit, new counsel was not part of the petitioner's original defense team, recognized that the federal courts had lost subject matter jurisdiction when petitioner May was released from state custody without any collateral consequences pursuant to the district court's unconditional habeas grant. That's what they're arguing. And what what I found on page 22 was interesting. The petition states council filed a motion to recall the mandate based on lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Did Narsal support that effort? Uh, we had provided significant support to May's case all throughout it. Unfortunately, we did not have much faith in that particular approach. So we didn't join with that. And uh, it was not because he's, he is definitely has been and is being screwed, but we didn't see recall the mandate as being a viable thing that was likely to happen. So, so to dig into that, so like the legal team for Narsal, you pick, you probably dissect the whole thing word for word and you figure out the pieces that you want to um, file the motion with or the brief, well, we, what's the term? We pick what we can afford to spend our limited resources on. This was not a case that would have lent itself to any fee recovery. We were doing it because it's the right thing to do. This is a a significant thing when the accused has to prove a significant element of the offense, which under that statute as it existed at the time, the accused had to prove that they didn't have a sexual motivation for the touching. The, the, The man was a lifeguard and he was touching minors at the pool theoretically to save their lives. That's the way I understand it. But we well, have to so, do that in a non-touching capacity, Larry. So we <laughs> looked at it and we couldn't find any case law that was compelling enough on a recall of a mandate with the jurisdictional claims that they were making. They're novel, but we couldn't find any indication and we consulted with a distinguished law professor and we just couldn't find that. So therefore we said we're out, but that doesn't change the fact that this is a miscarriage of justice. Um, and the motion was denied on June 10th of 22, so just seven or so months ago. 
in a four-sentence published order which stated that motions that assert a judgment is void because of a jurisdictional defect generally must show that the court that rendered judgment lacked even an arguable basis for jurisdiction. So what happens next? Well, the Supreme Court has this new cert petition before them, and they will decide whether to grant or deny the petition. My hunch is that it will be denied, and the tragedy of this injustice will continue. The 75-year sentence for all practical purposes is a life sentence for Stephen, and the statute was unconstitutional at the time. His attorney failed miserably to raise that as an issue. His attorney failed miserably. Well, I'm going to back a little bit on that. In terms of letting the jury reconstitute itself, that was a a really fast-moving situation where that might have been some viable reason to say I, I'd rather a hung jury keep deliberating. Maybe I'll get a, I'll get a, a, a mistrial here. You're going to get the mistrial anyway. So maybe I'll get an acquittal here if they keep if they keep uh, uh, deliberating. But certainly he ought to have raised the constitutional claim. This injustice is sad, but the attorneys created it, and the law limits what can be done in habeas relief. And we need to revisit the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act that was passed in the 90s. And that's really going to be the solution, is to give him another bite at the apple under different rules, and the rules are the way they are now, and nothing's going to change. Wow. All right. Um, any, and I mean, just, we've, we've talked about this a number of times. So maybe 2000 or something petitions for cert hit the Supreme court and they grant less than a hundred. So the, out of this ends up in the pile with the other couple grand of them for them to somehow see this as being something that they want to undertake and correct a wrong. Uh, so that doesn't sound like very good odds is what I'm trying to paint the picture of. You're a little low. The the number of cert petitions is usually between eight and nine thousand per year, and, and they oh, grant I'm sorry, eight, eighty to ninety. So you've got about a one percent chance of That's having worse, a petition sir. granted. And without those low odds, what would need to happen here would there there would have to be a plethora of interest from other states. I can assure you that there's not a single attorney general out there that serves. Any state in this country that wants the U.S. Supreme Court to grant cert on this, so therefore there won't be that plethora of friends of the court brief. You remember through this podcast we've talked about there was one issue where there was like a group of of attorneys general that put in a dozen or more uh, amicus briefs. I do, I do. He's not going to have that level of support. He's not going to, the Supreme Court is not likely to see this as something earth-shattering. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't get to the requisite four, because it takes four to be interested that there's something of significant public import. To me, the burden shifting of an unconstitutional statute is of great public importance, but that's not the issue before the court. The issue before the court now is whether or not subject matter jurisdiction was lost when they released Stephen May. Although the petition contains all the nuances of the case, that is really not before them now. What's before them now is, did the habeas court lose jurisdiction or did they not? If you take that to its logical conclusion, Stephen is now arguing that he would have preferred not to have been released when Judge Wake found it in his favor, 
that he would have preferred to have sat in prison while all the appeals were taking place. I don't think that we really want that to be the outcome, that no judge can ever release a person from custody or they're going to forfeit jurisdiction. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah. And have you invented the time machine that lets you go back and undo a decision that you made sometime in the past? Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, then maybe Mr. May can, can use that and help it out. Oh, that's really crappy. Someone in chat. So, uh, so he got 75 years for like touching kids as a lifeguard in, in the course of doing the duty of being a lifeguard. Yes, because they claimed that even though he was alleging that he was doing his job, that there was a sexual motivation and he was sexualizing these, these minors by where he was touching them and how he was touching them. That's their allegation. And, and Arizona is a tough state. He went to trial. He got convicted and he got a very lengthy sentence. Which is the follow-up. It says, even if there is, quote-unquote, unacceptable touching in a public place, 75 years? It's, it's amazing. 75 years for touching. Can you imagine if he'd actually done something? I was, I mean, and then that would be where that goes next. If he had somehow pushed the envelope and gone to the next stages of where that would go. I mean, do you bury the person under the jail? Do you take them to the nearest ocean and give them some concrete shoes? Well, I mean, I'm I'm minimizing it a little bit. I mean, for the since this is a family program, but there was apparently some allegations of of some significant touching. But okay. still, no matter what was done, seventy five years. We don't need to put people in prison for seventy five years very often. We just don't. That's a that's a long, 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 long time. Very good, sir. Uh, thank you for all of your efforts as always. Um, gosh, you know, and, and we got two patrons. Vampers for a second, please. Araceli, our guest tonight, became one of our new patrons. And then we had another person join. I sent you a question from that person. Did you? Did she come in at 1400 per month? Slightly less than that. It was close. And then we had a, an annual uh, set up by a person named Dustin. So thank you so very much for becoming patrons. I really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else you want to go over before we uh, skedaddle, sir? Not anything this episode, but I'm looking forward to next week. What do you have in store? You don't know yet, do you? I have no idea what we're going to do next week. It will be next week. Okay. <laughs> I hope you have a wonderful night. So go find all the information that you need to either at registrymatters.co or fypeducation.org. You can find all the stuff that you need to find, and I hope that you and all of the people in internet land have a wonderful, fantastic evening, and I'll talk to you soon. Good night. Bye. You've been listening to FYP.